0: Would you go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4 in your cell phone or a hard Bible in front of you in the pew rack, uh, open that up, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And if you're newish with us, I'll give you a few tips that will help you out as we study this morning. Uh, we refer back to the passage often. And so uh, it 's not our practice to read it once and then to close the Bible and put it away i 'd encourage you to keep your Bible open the whole time so you can refer back to it and then also i 'd encourage you to take a few notes we We believe the Word continues to speak to us even after our time and study together, and a few notes this morning might help you as you think uh, in the days ahead on the passage we spent time in today, so First Timothy chapter four, verse six. I'm going to ask for your patience with my voice this morning. There's some allergy stuff going on, and so uh, we'll just see how it goes. But uh, I like our chances. We'll make it one way or the other. We're going to make it. So I may hack a bit. You feel free to hack a bit, and uh, we'll get there together. Uh, Once upon a time, there was a zoo that was noted for its great collection of different animals. But one day, their gorilla died. Everyone was sad. But in order to keep up the appearance of having a full range of animals, the zookeeper hired a man to wear a gorilla suit to fill in for the dead animal. It was his first day on the job. The man didn't know how to act like a gorilla very well, uh, and so he was doing his best, and as he tried to move all gorilla-like, he got too close to the wall, and he tumbled over into the neighboring lion exhibit. And a lion rose and slowly walked towards him. And the man in the gorilla suit began to scream, convinced he was about to die, until the lion spoke to him and said, be quiet or you'll get us both fired. (laughs) It is sadly far too easy us to slip into our Christian costume and pretend to be something outwardly that we are not inwardly. That kind of hypocrisy was on full display in the church at Ephesus, the church that Timothy is in charge of fixing. It's a church we've been studying about these last few weeks in Paul's letter to Timothy. Uh, In the church, you have You have Christians whose lives are torn apart by false teaching. You have false teachers who have assumed authority, and they are ripping Scripture apart. They are instead teaching just made-up myths and all kinds of nonsense. It was a church full of hypocrisy from top to bottom. And in the passage we're going to study today, Paul is concerned with making sure that Timothy... His friend, his servant, put in charge of fixing this church, Paul wants to make sure that Timothy lives a consistent Christian life, both privately and publicly. So this passage is personal guidance for Timothy. In fact, it's the most intimate passage in the whole letter between Paul and Timothy. Paul speaks directly to him. Prior to this, Paul has talked to Timothy about different aspects of the church, You remember chapter 1, Paul talks about the false teachers. In chapter 2, he talks about the church in general, how the church should pray together. Then he speaks to Christian men and he speaks to Christian women directly. In chapter 3, Paul talks about church leadership. He talks about elders and then he talks about deacons. But now in chapter 4, he turns his attention squarely to his friend Timothy. In the passage we study today, verses 6 to the end of the chapter, these are pointed directly at Timothy himself. Paul knows the toll it takes on a person serving in a toxic environment. And so Paul wants to protect and encourage his dear friend. That's what I want to do with this passage this morning also, is to encourage you. My goal today is to equip you to have a vibrant walk with Jesus Privately and publicly, inside and out, that we would be consistent people. And consistency isn't just the goal, consistency is the tool to get us to the goal. That consistent sort of life, faithful privately, faithful publicly, is a life that sees a church fulfill the Great Commission. Do you have a burden for souls? Do you want to see people in your family, in your neighborhood? Come to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you wish to see the south shore come alive with the gospel? This passage tells us how to live, to see that come to pass. So I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message. When the body of elders laid their hands on you, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So the question is, how can we live the sort of consistent, vibrant Christian life that's effective for the sake of the gospel and the salvation of others. Paul talks to Timothy about his private life and his public life. And so let's look first at the private life of God's servants. We're just going to follow the structure of the passage this morning in our study. First, Paul talks to Timothy about the servant's private life. And when he does, he references three different areas, his life, his living, his doctrine, And his own salvation. So, Paul first talks to Timothy here about his private life. It's not enough that Timothy should lead the church well, he has to live well. You see, God is not some cold hearted employer who just wants you to get the job done. He's a heavenly father who is concerned with the way you live your life. And so, Paul highlights these three areas of Timothy's private life that require attention. First is his doctrine. Look at what Paul writes in verse 6. He says to Timothy, if you point these things out to the brothers, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus. What are the these things that Paul is referencing here in verse 6? Well, I take Paul to be pointing backwards to the passage that that comes just before this one, the passage that we studied last week, which was the end of chapter 3, the start of chapter 4. If you remember the sermon in a sentence, it was live your life so as to display the gospel and enjoy the goodness of God. And so Paul tells Timothy, if you remind the brothers, if you point these things out to fellow believers, if you remind them to display the gospel and to enjoy the goodness of God, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus brought up in the truths of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. So, Timothy's a good minister of Christ Jesus when he teaches what is true about Jesus. Now, Paul, at the very end of this passage, verse 16, he uses the word doctrine. That's the word I've chosen to use here for these verses. Uh, And when when you and I think about doctrine, we may think about all kinds of different theological categories and all this minutia. Doctrine relates to how we baptize, what we think about, all these different areas of, of church life. But that's not what Paul is getting at here when he uses the word doctrine or references doctrine. He has something very specific in mind. When Paul talks about doctrine here, he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that faithful story that Christ is God in the flesh. He came and died on the cross in our place for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead and that whoever believes in him will be saved from their sin and given eternal life. That's the doctrine that Paul is referencing here. Remember, this is the story he's fighting for to reestablish in the church at Ephesus because the false teachers have just torn it to shreds with all of their nonsense. So Paul wants Timothy to teach the things that are true about Jesus Christ, to hold to the true things of the faith, and that is the gospel. So Paul goes on to say that this true teaching about Jesus is what Timothy was brought up in there towards the end of verse 6. You were brought up in this. If you have a different translation of the Bible than this NIV, your Bible probably uses the word nourished. You were nourished on this word. Paul's telling Timothy, look, you, you, you were raised on it, brought up. You have feasted and eaten the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what's made you strong for the work God's given you. It's a really fantastic juxtaposition by Paul. If you think back to last week, uh, in verse 3, he references one aspect of the false teacher's agenda. The false teachers were telling people to abstain from certain foods for the sake of their holiness. Paul calls that utter nonsense. Abstaining from food does not make one holy, but being nourished by the gospel, that does it. Feasting on the Word of God, this is where we find our purity, our holiness, our godliness. So Timothy is to feast on the truth of the faith. And then in verse 7, he instructs Paul instructs Timothy to reject false teaching, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. This is a repeated theme throughout the letter. We've hit on it since all the way back in chapter 1 when Paul describes the false teachers there. He says to Timothy, Command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These false teachers are babblers. So have nothing to do with their godless myths and their old wives' tales. Instead, Timothy, nourish yourself, grow in your godliness. By a focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is to inform the way you live. So, Paul's instructions shouldn't be lost on us. Your personal walk with God must be defined by the truths of the faith. It matters what you believe, it matters what you believe in particular about Jesus. Several years ago, my wife and I were a part of a conversation with two other couples who were Christian workers. And a disagreement arose about a significant theological matter. And one of the people ended the conversation this way. She said, I don't think it matters what we believe. We just need to love Jesus. But here's the deal. If we don't believe right about Jesus, we can't love Jesus right. Right? We, we don't get credit for, for doing our best while holding to teachings that are not in line with Scripture. But look, I get the sentiment. I understand that some people use doctrine like a hammer. They'll argue for the truth of Christ while lacking the character of Christ. They're exhausting, quite frankly. When their whole life is wrapped up in this theological minutia, and they're so bent out of shape over making sure you fit their tiny little categories, some Christians would rather argue than evangelize. But the fact that some people are doctrinal bullies does not mean we should turn away from holding to the truths of the faith we got to know what we believe. Our doctrine matters. What we believe about the gospel is of utmost importance. Paul's been hammering that home over and over again in this letter. So Paul's point to Timothy and to us is that we have to nourish our private life by feasting on the gospel. Now, I just noticed something. I noticed that my PowerPoint is incorrect, and this is my fault. I put life first, and it should be doctrine. It should be doctrine first. And then life in verses 7b through 8. So Paul first talks to Timothy about his doctrine, what he believes. And next, verse 7, he begins to point to Timothy's life, the way he lives privately. Not only is Timothy supposed to feast on the gospel, he's to train himself to be godly. Look at what Paul says in the middle of verse 7. He says, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Did you know that your sanctification is a partnered venture? It's not something that God just gives you, and it's not something that you on your own simply achieve. Our sanctification is accomplished As we walk hand in hand with God, there are things we do and there are things God does. And this is seen even in the passage we've studied last week into this week. If you remember last week, the end of chapter 3, Paul ends that chapter with this beautiful hymn in which he describes, uh, he gives us six lines of things Christ does that reveal the mystery of godliness. All of those things are things Christ has done. He's the focal point of each one of those six lines. The mystery of godliness is Christ has achieved it and given it. But then you hear in chapter 4, godliness is something we are to pursue, to train for, to do. And look, Paul hammers this home in this passage by hitting Timothy with 12 different commands. Over and over and over again. Do this, don't do this. Just command after command, not because this is a works-based salvation, but because this is the godly life that God's servants are called to, especially privately. I find so many people think about godliness as only avoiding bad things. I don't find enough of us that think about godliness as something we should train for on a regular basis. Paul says it plainly, train yourself for godliness. So it begs the question of us, what is our training regimen like? How are you training yourself For Godliness. If we are training ourselves for godliness, it implies that this is a regular daily type of training. If we're training ourselves for godliness, it means that we're being intentional with our efforts. Training doesn't imply something accidental. It means we set a goal, we strive towards it. Every day it's intentional. If we're training for godliness, it means we have a goal in mind. That goal is Christ-likeness. And that's a goal that's achievable. Are you training yourself to be godly? This is where you might push back and say something like, well, every day? Every day training to be godly. That that sounds like a lot. Sounds kind of legalistic, Cody, if we're being really honest. Uh, and besides, like I've just got too much going on to add daily spiritual training to the mix. It's just not going to happen. Plus, what's the point? I just... I don't even understand the Bible very well. I'm pretty content with where I am. I know I can do better. And Paul responds to your objection and says this in verse 8. Godliness has value for all things. For all things. Look, uh, do you have a rotten attitude? Are you just a grumpmeister every day? You're angry all the time and the people in your life know that? Is your marriage in the toilet? Are you being destroyed by sin? Is the proclamation of your faith silent? Well, training yourself to be godly has value for all things. There's not one part of your life that will be better off because you don't train yourself in godliness. I ascended the mountain by not Training for godliness. No one ever has that testimony. It has value for all things. Parenting, grandparenting, being a single adult, making it through high school, whatever the thing is, training yourself in godliness has value for it. But Paul doesn't stop there. He continues on in verse 8. He says it has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. I want you to think about all the things that demand your time and attention every day. And how many of those things hold promise for this life and the life to come? How many of those things make this day better and hold promise that every day to come is going to be better as well? I I just don't know that many things at all. But I know that training ourselves in godliness Holds out a promise to us that God holds and God fulfills as we walk with Him. Training may seem like a, sort of an odd way to think about the Christian life, but I don't know why it would be. There's so many areas of life around us where training is absolutely essential. You want trained people to be your dentist, you want trained people to groom your dog. You want trained people to do surgery, to fly your plane, to take care of mass transit. We need trained people to do these things. And so it is for those who walk with Jesus Christ that we would daily train ourselves to be like him. How do we do that? Well, Paul doesn't give us specific instructions. He doesn't tell Timothy, train yourself and here's here's the eight ways you get it done, bro. But we can pick up from the rest of the letter some really good insight into what it looks like to train ourselves in godliness. Just in the passage we're studying, what we've just read, training in godliness has to require regular nourishment from the Word of God. Daily, daily, daily reading the Word of God. There's so much pushback on daily Bible reading. Oh, it's so legalistic. Uh, It's an unattainable goal. I'm not going to get there. Look, you breathe every day, you eat every day, you drink water every day, you're in relationship every day, you do something related to your personal hygiene every day, every, we do things every day. And how could an audience with the God of creation be something we go a day without? I'm not putting a legalistic burden on you. I'm saying you have this open door privilege every day to sit with the king. There's nothing you're going to do today more important than that, I guarantee it. And so take advantage of that, sister. Brother, work that into your schedule. Begin to dominate your daily calendar in such a way that Christ gets priority. Every day, nourish yourself on the Word of God. If we were to look just at chapter 2 alone, we would see Paul telling us to adorn ourselves with good deeds, that we train in godliness when we pray with each other, that we train in godliness when we sit under gospel teaching. All these things are ways that we grow in Christ-likeness. So brothers and sisters, we've got to eat the Bible and train ourselves in the way of Christ. And then Paul's final word about Timothy's private life, found in verses 9 and 10, focuses on salvation. Why should Timothy nourish himself on the word and train himself in godliness, it's because he's put his hope in the living God. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who's the Savior of all men and especially of those who believe. So here Paul speaks to Timothy about motivation for godly living. Last week, we spoke a little bit about how we tend to get our works and our faith out of order, meaning so many people wrongly assume that adherence to a moral code is what will get them favor with God. They do good things in order to get saved, or they do good things in order to get God's favor. But Paul's flipped that in a major way because that's what Christ has done at the cross, He says to Timothy, Look, the reason you do these good things, the reason you train for godliness is not so you can be rescued by God, but because you have been saved by the living God. Your experience of salvation is what motivates you to eat the Word and train in godliness. God's been so good to you, Timothy. He's saved you, rescued you, lifted you up. He's strengthening you even now. These are the reasons that we're motivated to live this way, to do these things. The last line of verse 11 needs a little bit of attention. Look at it with me in your Bible. Paul says, verse 11, we put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially of those who believe. So this is where... Alarms might go off and you cringe a little bit. Paul sounds very universalist. God's the Savior of all men. What does that mean? Well, universalism teaches that all people are saved by God eventually, whether they are Christian or not. And universalists will point to verse 11 to support their argument. They won't point to much else in Scripture, but they'll point here because it suits them. But they're wrong for... Two primary reasons. First of all, remember that Paul is reacting throughout this letter to the exclusivism of the false teachers. If this was a type of exclusivism that kept Gentiles out, then Paul's statement here is about the broad availability of salvation to all who believe. So is Paul saying that God saves all people? Not at all. He is saying rather that God saves all. All kinds of people. He's the savior of all men, Jew and Gentile alike. You may not be convinced by that. That's okay. A second reason universalists are wrong is because five seconds in reading any of Paul's letters, you know that Paul is not a universalist. Just chapter 1, verse 20. You remember Paul talked about two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who are false teachers in the church at Ephesus. And what did Paul say he was doing with these two men? He said, I am handing them over to Satan. He doesn't say, let them speak their babble, because we're all going to get to the top of the mountain anyways. Whoever teaches universalism teaches something just as demonic as what was present in the church at Ephesus. Paul's no universalist. The gospel is not a universalist gospel. It is broadly open. It is the door is wide open to all who would believe. So, what is Paul's message to Timothy about his private life? Timothy is to pay attention to his doctrine. Namely, he's to anchor himself in the gospel. Timothy is to train himself for godliness. He's to do all of this because his hope is in the living God, the one who has saved him. That's how you and I are to live, also, eating the word training ourselves in godliness because God has rescued us for all eternity. When Paul finishes talking about Timothy's private life, he then turns to Timothy's public life. That's what we have here at the end. Again, my PowerPoint is incorrect. It should be life first and then doctrine. This is what happens when you do this early on Sunday morning. It should be life first and doctrine second. So, Paul first turns to Timothy and talks about his life, how he's to live publicly among the people. Look at what Paul says in verses 11 and 12. He says, Timothy, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. So, Timothy, command and teach these things. What? What follows are items that are for everyone in the church. They're instructions to Timothy, but they are for the sake of the whole church, for all of us. In verse 12, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. I've held on to this verse ever since I was a new believer uh, when I was 15 years old. In the last week or so, the Busby girls have been working to memorize this. They're going to come now and recite it in front of all of you this morning. No, they're not. Um... But it's a beautiful passage. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. How young was Timothy? We don't know for sure. The scholars have done some research and what they found is that Timothy was indeed very very young. In fact, far younger than we might realize. Some have said Timothy was as young as 43 years old. I mean, just a baby. <laughs> Paul names five areas in which Timothy is to set an example for the believers. Each of these five areas correspond to damage done by the false teachers in the church. Timothy is to be an example in speech. Well, the false teachers are nonsense babblers. He's to set an example in his conduct. Well, the false teachers have brought the church into disrepute. He's to set an example in love. Well, the false teachers have abandoned love. He's to set an example in faith, but the false teachers have shipwrecked their faith. He's just set an example in purity. The false teachers have stained the purity, the godliness of the church. So here's the question for you as we read verse 12. Are you following Jesus in such a way that your life is an example to be followed? If others were to shape their Christian life according to how you walk with Jesus publicly, What would their Christian lives look like? Moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandma, grandpa, do the children in your life find in you an example worth following? Young people, 43 and under, are you living your life so as to set an example for others? Not using youth as an excuse for crazy living? I'll get serious when I'm older. What is that? Don't let anyone despise you because you're young. Don't use your youth as an excuse for sin. Don't use it as an excuse to avoid holiness. Do not underestimate the influence you as a young person have in the family of faith. Set an example for the believers. Jim Elliott, missionary who was martyred in South America, wrote the following prayer that to me echoes the lessons of verse 12. He said this, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Brothers and sisters, let your life be a public example to be followed an example that points people to Jesus Christ. So Paul speaks to Timothy about his public life. He also talks to him about his public doctrine in verses 13 and 14. Look at what he says, starting in verse 13. Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So again, remember what the false teachers have been doing. They've been publicly maligning Scripture, giving attention to myths and genealogies, just absolute nonsense. And so where should Timothy's focus be? Timothy, your focus must be on Scripture. Read it publicly. Preach it publicly. Teach it publicly. And I don't think it's a mistake that Paul told Timothy to first live an exemplary public life of faith and then tells him, preach the word. Because Timothy's life will give credibility to the word that he preaches. If Timothy is a hypocrite, then his message falls on deaf ears. No one buys that. Not in the first century, not in the 21st century. We do not abide hypocrites giving us the word of God. So for you and I, the challenge is that we would live publicly the way we nourish ourselves privately, and then we would leverage our public example for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian, we are to live an exemplary life so that we can speak the eternal word. All the time, we're encouraging our church family to invite friends and to bring them to church. And there's that's good ministry. But if you were to ask me what's the most effective witness in the life of a non-believer, it's not necessarily going to be the pulpit. It's going to be their Christian neighbor, their Christian friend. It's you, because your life has credibility with them. I don't. I have a title. I have a, a microphone. That's it. But your life has credibility, and they've seen in you hopefully and heard in you hopefully. The difference that faith makes in your life. And so when you pivot the conversation to matters of faith, you have credibility. And they listen. That's the way we're to achieve our mission of making disciples. Living publicly as an example so that we can speak publicly the eternal word of God. Paul Lastly, refers one more time to Timothy's salvation. But this time it's a little different. You remember the first time he spoke about his salvation as the motivation for serving? Now he speaks about salvation as the outcome of his public ministry. Verse 15, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Key words, life, doctrine Watch them closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So you can hear the urgency, I think, in Paul's words throughout the passage, but especially here in verses 15 and 16. Be diligent, Timothy. Give yourself wholly to these things. Watch your life and doctrine. Persevere in these things. He knows it's a hard road ahead for Timothy. Timothy. But Paul knows that when Timothy watches closely over his life and doctrine, there are going to be two outcomes. The first outcome is at the end of verse 15. Paul says, when you live this way, you do so so that everyone may see your progress. What kind of progress is Paul talking about? This is more than just simple maturation or skills development. When Paul uses this word progress elsewhere in his writings, he's always referring to the advancement of the gospel. So if people can see Timothy's progress, what they will see is a gospel proclaimed and a gospel believed by those who hear. That's the progress that's going to be evident in Timothy's life. When you watch your life and doctrine closely, people get saved. That's not the only outcome. Paul, at the end of verse 16, says this, if you persevere in these things, you will save both yourself And your hearers. What does Paul mean when he tells Timothy, You'll save yourself? Isn't Timothy already saved? Well, absolutely he is. But what Paul has in mind here is the idea of perseverance. Paul talks about salvation in several different tenses. Throughout Paul's letters, we see him speak of salvation in the past tense. You were saved, you are saved. You are being saved and you will be saved. All those perspectives on our salvation are right. So when Paul says, Timothy, in doing this you'll save yourself, he's speaking to Timothy's perseverance. You, will be, you are saved and you will be saved. Not only that, but Timothy's hearers also will be saved. Cody, why should I watch my life and doctrine closely Because eternities hang in the balance. Do you want to be the kind of Christian who fulfills the Great Commission? Do you want to be the kind of Christian who impacts lostness, who brings forward the kingdom of God in the lives of men and women, boys and girls, who are dead in their sin? You do so by watching closely to your life and doctrine. It begs the question for all of us here, are we these kinds of people who have faith? Are we those who believe or are we those who simply have a wish? A wish for your eternity looks like this, I'm going to do my best, in the end I hope it will be enough. But that's not gospel, that's not salvation, that's not what Jesus died for. You don't have to live your life with just a wish that maybe it'll be enough. You can know today that what Christ did is enough. What you do is never going to be enough. We're always going to come up short. What Christ did in coming to us in the flesh, dying in our place, rising again from the dead, and telling us if you believe you'll be saved, that is enough. There's hope and encouragement in new life for the one who sees Jesus in this passage and says yes to Him. So, Paul's instructions to Timothy. If we step back 30,000 feet, we got Timothy's private life, public life. Our private life, our public life. Privately, I want to pay attention to my doctrine, to the gospel. I want to eat the Word of God. I, I, I want to train myself for godliness. I'm going to do that because Christ has rescued me for His glory and for all eternity. And then publicly, I want to make known Jesus Christ in the way I live. I want to live an exemplary life. I want to teach, read, share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to do that towards the end that people would hear and come to salvation in Christ. Paul's instructions to Timothy were not anything new. It was, in fact, an old wisdom, much older than Paul. The same idea shows up in the book of Proverbs Chapter 3. The speaker in Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 3 says this Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Love and faithfulness. Love is something lived, that's our life. Faithfulness is adherence to the Word of God. Here he speaks of the way we live and what we believe, life and doctrine. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck like a necklace that you wear in public for others to see. Write them on the tablet of your heart, inwardly, privately, that you're the same person inside and out. And then you will win favor in a good name. In the sight of God and man, we worry too much about living an outward life that covers up the junk. So, how about instead we daily train ourselves to be godly and start to live our faith from the inside out? Brothers and sisters, watch your life and doctrine closely so that the kingdom of God might gain territory in the lives of our families and our neighbors. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Father I'm grateful for all the ways your word comes to us it doesn't always come as something soft and fluffy sometimes it comes as twelve commands in a row and those commands don't take us away from a a life marked by grace but rather they show us how to press forward in the grace we've been shown we know we, we can't live these things with perfection but we know that You enable us to do better. You enable us to grow in our godliness. You wouldn't tell us to train for this if it wasn't something possible. So Lord, I pray that You would help us privately and publicly to live consistent lives. Consistent, defined according to the gospel. In our private places, in our prayer closets, in our alone times, let us be people who feast on Your Word, and people who prepare ourselves to live publicly the faith that owns us. And in public, who give us boldness, though we might be young or have any other number of excuses. Let us live to set an example with our lives mirroring the gospel that has changed us. God, would You let us be known as that kind of church a church who privately and publicly were people who walk with you God I pray for any friends in here that don't know you as their savior that they would quit working 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 and wishing for things to be right and instead to put all their hope and trust in Jesus Christ who died for them so Lord help us we've feasted on your word As we look to the week ahead, we need to train ourselves in godliness that we would be bold in our witness and see many come to faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.